All right, so we're going to go ahead and get started. First of all, thank you guys so much for coming. I am so excited to finally be in Revelation, to finally be going through this. I know I've been hyping this up for months now, um, but I legitimately could not be more excited to be doing this. So, and I look, I get it. This book can be scary or daunting. It's a lot at times, but I want to make you guys two promises before we start going through this book. The first is that we are not going to rush through this book. Okay. I think a lot of times people just quickly go through a book. They quickly do things. They, they kind of throw a lot of the doctrinal stuff out, a lot of theological stuff out, and they just kind of get through it. Okay. But we're not going to do that. We're going to take our time. We're going to, un we're going to unpack some of this stuff. We're going to spend a good bit of time on it. The second thing is, is that we're not going to spend too much time on anything. Um, and I feel like this is also important to say, because we could easily spend weeks on one chapter of Revelation, but we're not going to do that. I'm not trying to give you guys a step-by-step -step of every single word in this book. I'm just trying to give you guys the tools that you can use to be able to figure this book out on your own. I'm just kind of giving you a guide on how to get through it. That's my only goal. Um, the main thing that I want you guys to see is that this book is not as confusing or as hard as it is often portrayed to be because it was meant to be read and understood by the original audience, by the original people reading it. And it's meant to be like that for us too. It just takes some time to go through it and have the right tools to be able to actually understand what's happening. So the first thing I want to talk about is how we read or interpret this book. Because one of the biggest problems with this book is that so many people come into it and they don't have a clue how to read it or interpret it. You know, they come in and they're like, oh, well, this must mean this because it sounds like this. And they kind of bring their own spin to it, their own experiences, their own ideas on what these symbols could possibly mean and what the imagery could possibly mean. And so... What I want to focus on tonight is just we're going to spend all this time tonight. We're just going through the first few verses. And this is this is all just going to be the introduction. Um, and my goal tonight is that, look, we're going to we're going to tackle some big ideas. We're going to tackle some complex stuff. But we're going to do all of that tonight on the front end on the first week so that the rest of the time we don't have to do all of that. We don't have to spend a lot of time breaking stuff down or talking about big words. We can just focus on the text. So first of all. One of the important things to understand is that one of the biggest secrets to understanding the book of Revelation is understanding the Old Testament. And this is going to be important for us as we continue to walk through this book, because even next week, we're going to spend half of our time looking at Old Testament books, because that's all the all Revelation is. It's just taking stuff that was already said in the Old Testament, that's already been, re, that's already been written, and it's kind of rewriting it for a more modern audience. It's taking all the things that these Jews would have already known about, that they would have known about because of knowing the Old Testament. And they're taking it in there, and it's basically John writing this out in a way that it's like, hey, this has all been fulfilled in Christ, and the stuff that hasn't been fulfilled yet is about to be fulfilled. That's the entirety of the book of Revelation. It's just, it's just bringing back stuff that's already been written in the Old Testament. And also, it's important to understand that this book was not confusing for its original audience. It was meant to be understood by them and by us today. And this book is complicated, but that's mostly because there are so many different views on how to read and interpret it. But once you figure that part out, once you understand how to interpret it and how to read it, it becomes a lot easier to understand. Okay, this book wasn't meant to be mystic or cryptic, or it wasn't meant to hide secret messages for us to discover 2,000 years later. Like This was all a book that was completely understood by its audience at the time, and it's meant to be read and understood by us. To help us do this, we have to understand both the language and the context of this book. It's just like how when you go to a new country, 
say you're going on a mission trip or something, typically you spend some time beforehand in orientation. You know, you're learning about the culture of the country. You're learning about the language. You're learning about, you know, the language that they speak and how to speak it, how to understand it. And you're learning about the different the different the cultural context and why they do certain things and how this is cool in america but this is rude if you do it here this is fine here but this is you know they find it offensive when you do this here just like how you have to go through that orientation when you're going to a new country you have to understand these things about the book of revelation you have to understand the language that it was written in and the context of the book and the culture that the book was written in so all of that said, this book is not primarily about the Pope or Hitler or the end times or even John who wrote it. This book is primarily through and through about Christ and him triumphant. And over and over again, we're going to see that theme played out of just Christ being over everything, of Christ being, of reigning, him reigning supreme, and of him being good and righteous and holy in all things. So what we're going to do is we're about to go through five different ways to interpret this book. Um, and you guys have these on your notes in front of you. Um, these kind of come from different places. Specifically, I pulled these definitions, a lot of them, from, um, from Joel Beek and his commentary on the book of Revelation. And so what we're going to be breaking down is just kind of five different approaches that people take to the book of Revelation. And we're going to weigh the, the pros and the cons of each of them. And I'm going to talk about what approach we're going to take. So the first one is the preterist approach. That is P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. -E -E and the preterist approach sees the book of Revelation wholly in terms of the circumstances that occurred in John's day. And it does not reference future events. In other words, all of Revelation takes place in the past, okay? It doesn't apply to us today. It isn't for us today. It all already happens. Um, this very literally takes this passage, at the, this verse at the beginning of Revelation. It references the things that must soon take place and says, hey, that means the things that must soon take place like right then at that time. So, for example, when it starts going through the seven churches in chapters two and three, it's talking about the seven churches the, the letter was written to, and that's it. Seven churches and their surrounding areas, and only those seven churches. That's only who it applies to. The strength of this view is that it's consistent with itself. Like, preterists are at least consistent with what they believe. They take this book very literally at times. The problem with this approach is that it doesn't apply the letter to us today or to the church as a whole. So that's the preterist approach. The next approach is the historicist approach. That is the historicist approach. It's H-I-S-T-O-R-I-C-I-S-T. The historicist approach sees the book of Revelation almost entirely as a symbolic representation of the entirety of church history. So everything from the first coming of Christ to his second coming at the end of the world is in this book, and it is all fully represented here. Essentially, the the seven churches represent the seven ages of the church. You know, today we live in the era of um, Laodicea, the lukewarm church. So every single church this is written to, it's all, it's all a different era in church history. It takes place over the entirety of time. This view was held by most of the reformers back in the day. And so the strength of this view is that it encompasses all of church history. It literally takes the book of Revelation and says, hey, this is about everyone all the time. Like this, this spans history all the way from the first coming of Christ to the second coming. 
The problem with this view is that it assumes that Revelation follows a perfect timeline of events. It kind of assumes that everything in Revelation happens in a certain sequence, like, oh, the seven churches represent seven ages of church history. So, you know, we go through different stages. It follows this predetermined path along throughout church history. And that's not entirely consistent with the way that Revelation is taught. So the next one is the futurist approach. The futurist approach, that's F-U-T-U-R-I-S-T. So this one is the one that a lot of you have probably been introduced to before. It's the one that a lot of you have probably heard of before without even realizing it. The futurist approach sees the book of Revelation, specifically chapters 4 through 22. Okay, so after it gets through talking about the seven churches, after, after all of that is addressed and just the rest of the entirety of the book, it sees all of this as referring entirely to events that will happen in the future. But these events happen alongside the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. Um, this is a view that's typically held entirely by premillennialists. Um, it was very, very popular at the beginning of the 21st century when dispensationalism became popular, but it has, sent, it has since lost a lot of that power. So typically this isn't something that's taught in seminaries anymore. It's not typically something that's very popular now. This is something that was very, very popular with a lot of the, a lot of like the baby boomer generations and even older than them back at the turn of the century. Um, of the 20th century, and then um, kind of worked its way out over that century into the 21st century, where it kind of started to lose steam. So the strength of this view is that it emphasizes the victory of Christ over the world. You know, this view says, hey, all of these events are yet to take place. Christ is going to rule over this world. He's going to be victorious. The problem with this view is that it completely ignores the original context of Revelation, and it offers little for us to apply to the church today. Um, Essentially, this view takes Revelation completely literally, failing to see a lot of the symbolism that exists in this book. This book wasn't written, this view would argue, this book wasn't necessarily written for the people of that day. It was written for us now to understand based on what's going to happen in the future. The next approach is the idealist approach. And so the idealist approach... Um, it's sometimes called the poetic or the inspirational approach. In this view, sees the events described in the book of Revelation as repeating from time to time in the experience of the church from age to age until the end time. So essentially, everything that happens in Revelation kind of repeats over and over again throughout different ages in the church all the way until the end times. Um, essentially, these events happen again and again and again. This doesn't just reference one point in church history, and it doesn't span, like the whole book isn't spanning all of church history. It's just events in the book that continue to happen, that we see happening again and again. The strength of this position is the ability to apply this book to churches of all times and ages. So essentially, all believers everywhere can look up and say, hey, this book applies to us because these events could happen again at any time. The problem with this view is that it's, Difficult to affirm exegetically, specifically by the phrase at the beginning of the book that says these things that must soon take place, which we'll get to that in a minute. Um, so this is a view that kind of says, hey, historicism is good, but it's not strong enough. These views, these events must happen over and over and over again. And finally, we have the eclectic approach. The eclectic approach, and that's spelled E-C-L-E-C-T-I-C. 
The great thing about the eclectic approach is that it embraces all of the apparent strengths and rejects the apparent weaknesses of all the other views. Um, essentially, it acknowledges like, hey, there's elements of truth in every single one of these, but there's also elements that don't fully line up with what we see in scripture. So it takes the good and it leaves out the bad. Um, this is the view that we are going to be taking with this book specifically as we study through it. One, because I think it's the most fair and balanced view for us to go through. Um, and two, it allows us to acknowledge the other views and the good things about the other views and also say, hey, this is this is where this view fails at this specific passage or this specific verse. Um, this is similar to an idealist approach, but it's firmly rooted in the context in which the book was originally written. So it says, hey, there are parts of this book that specifically apply to that time period. Like there are things that happened in that time period that actually occurred, like seven churches were real churches. You know, this book was meant to be written to them and to the churches around them, but it's also for the universal church as a whole. There are elements of this book that happened back in the first century that only applied to the first century, but then there are elements of this book that have continued to happen over history that may still yet be, that may still yet happen. And so, the eclectic approach, said by some to be a cop-out approach, is um, it's a very balanced approach that says, hey, we're going to take all the good things and leave all the bad things about the other approaches. And that's what we're going to be doing throughout this book. It's important to understand these things. Like I get that I just gave you guys a lot of information, a lot of big words, um, but it's important to understand these because these help paint a picture for us of what the symbolism and the imagery represents. This helps, this helps us as we're going through this book understand, okay, do I take this literally? Do I not take this literally? Has this already happened? Will this happen? What, what does it mean when it says this? You know, what is the context? Who was this written to? Using this approach helps us take all of this into account when we're going through this book. It's also important for us to understand as we get into this book that the images and the, symbol, and the symbolism, all of this stuff was not meant to be taken literally. Okay, this was all meant to paint a picture for us. Essentially, just imagine that all the images and the symbolism, this was all meant to paint a, not a physical picture. Like we weren't meant to actually picture Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth and eyes that had flames, but we were meant to picture him in a spiritual light. Like we were meant to see who Jesus was described as being through these images and through this symbolism. So as we walk through this, we're going to encounter a lot of a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism, and we just need to remember, hey, this isn't meant to be literal, but it all means something. It's meant to paint a picture, just not a literal picture. And here's the deal, guys. My goal for all of us, my goal for you guys specifically, is to understand how to read this book for yourselves so that you can use it in your daily walk with Christ, just like you would any other epistle. By the time that we're done, I want you to be able to read this book just like you would James or Romans or Ephesians and use it in a lot of ways that actually benefit your daily walk with Christ because that's what this book was meant to do. It was meant to provide encouragement and hope to Christians of that day and age and to Christians now. And it was written as an epistle that was meant to be understood by the people of that time. And so for us, with the right tools and the right context, it can do the same thing for us. In some ways, even more than some of the other epistles, because this book provides such vivid imagery, and it's literally a direct address to us by Christ. So, with all of that out of the way, let's talk about the setting and the background. And with this, I'd like you guys, if you haven't yet, to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. 
Specifically, we are going to be looking at just the first few verses here. Verses one through three. Um, this gives us the setting and the context for this book and tells us why it was written, gives us the background, all of this important stuff. So in Revelation chapter one, starting in verse one, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So already in these first three verses, we see why this book was written and the setting for it and what was taking place here. And so... First of all, we see that this book was written by John the Baptist on the island of Patmos. Um, essentially, Patmos was a prison island. Um, a lot of people have probably described this before as if he was just exiled to some desolate place. But in truth, there were a lot of mines on the island of Patmos. It was a big, it was, there were big quarries there. And so a lot of times the Roman, go- the Roman government would send their prisoners there so they could work in the quarries, they could work in the mines. Um, so likely that's what John was there to do was to work in the not in the mines. It's also important to notice that at the time of this book, and it doesn't explicitly say this here, but he was probably in his nineties. Um, so in his nineties working in the mine, he's in poor health and he's living a very difficult life here, which is so important to the context of this book. This also makes him the oldest living apostle because all the other apostles have been killed off by this point. He's the only one that's still alive, and it's because he's been exiled. We also see in these verses that this was a revelation given to Jesus by the Father, which is a very weird and confusing thing to say. But what the reason that that's important, the reason that that matters for us, is because this shows us that this is directly from God the Father. He's giving it to Jesus. Like he's speaking this vision to Jesus. He's giving this revelation to Christ. And then Christ in turn gives this revelation to John so that he can share it with the seven churches and beyond. Um, We see here this revelation was brought to him by a vision. So he's actually seeing the things that he's talking about, which is the key to this book. Okay, so when he starts describing things in the, Im- in the imagery and the symbolism that he's talking about, he's actually seeing it. Like he's having a vision of these things. And that's why he's using such vivid language and such vivid imagery. He's actually describing the things that he sees. But that's also important because that's meant to show us like, hey, this is a vision for John and not for us. We're not meant to be reading this book and physically thinking about what he's seeing. Instead, we're meant to be reading this book and thinking about what it means that he's seeing this. Like, what is Jesus trying to show him with the visions that he's being given? You know, what is this angel of the Lord trying to show him? So first, I want to address the fact that all of this imagery and symbolism would have been very, very common back then. And therefore, the early Christians who read this would have immediately understood what this was trying to say. Okay, this kind of imagery, symbolism, it is all over the Old Testament. And so the Jews at that time, who that was the only scripture they had, all they're reading is the Old Testament. And so they, they hear these images and they hear this symbolism and they're like, hey, I know what that means. Like this relates to this passage in Daniel or this, this passage in Zechariah. Like they know what he's talking about. This isn't some foreign concept to them. Second, visions, imagery, and symbolism were used because God wanted us to visualize these things. Okay, this is a book that 
for John, this vision had to be seen to understood. Okay, John isn't supposed to be speaking here in parables that are difficult to understand. Instead, he's evoking imagery that has the same effect that a pop-up book would have on a child. Like this is meant to, to stand out to us and to, to be bold and to be big. Like we're supposed to see these things and be like, whoa, that's crazy. Like we're supposed to see these images and that, that should make us want to praise God even more because we can understand it better because of the imagery and symbolism. So here's the context of this book. Revelation is most likely written towards the end of the reign of Domitian. This man was described even by secular writers as a, as a savage monster. Um, essentially, he hated everyone and he horribly persecuted the Christians at this time, meaning that the seven churches that John writes to were experiencing this persecution firsthand. Like they're experiencing what it's like to be killed and hunted and thrown in the prison all for just having faith in Christ. That's the kind of ruler who was most likely reigning during this time. So John is writing towards the end of this. Okay, so a lot of the events of this horrible persecution has been happening for years now. And so he's writing to churches, not that are, that are unfamiliar with pain and tribulation, but he's writing as somebody who's going through pain, who's going through tribulation, who's going through the struggle to churches who have been going through it for years. And he's writing this to them as a source of comfort to them. This context is important for understanding the events referenced in this book. Like when it talks about Antichrist, obviously it's referring to many who are going to come after. Like there, there are many Antichrists throughout history. But first and foremost, at that time, it was referring to the Roman emperor Domitian, who was in power at that time and was very against Christ and was described in this book. However, that history also frames Revelation as being written to comfort churches enduring hardships. I see, this is what makes this book so important. This is what makes this so, so relevant even for us today, because churches are always going to experience hardships and suffering. Christians are always going to experience hardships and suffering. So for us to read this book today, it should derive this sense of hope, knowing the context it is written and knowing what John was going through, knowing what these churches were going through, and knowing that they still put their hope in Christ and that we can too. So let's talk about why this book is important for us today. This is something I want to make sure that we all get. I think a lot of times people read this book. There have even been some amazing, amazing preachers and teachers out there who haven't understood the importance of this book today. Even Martin Luther went as far as to say that he felt that this book was useless, that it didn't belong in the Bible. And it's unfortunate because it completely misses the importance of this book and why it matters for us today. First and foremost, Revelation is meant to be a book of hope and comfort for Christians. Revelation is meant to be a book of of hope and comfort for Christians. It's relevant to persecuted churches, but it also serves as a source of comfort and hope to the struggling Christian. This book is for any time that we experience suffering, that we experience persecution, that we experience struggles in life. And it's meant to remind us over and over and over again of the greatness of our God and of the glorious victory of Christ over all things. And this book is still relevant today to us because it speaks to us in our own context, just like any other epistle does. Looking at this book through an eclectic view means that we understand that the seven churches mentioned in verse 4 were real living churches that existed back then, but they, that they also represent something greater. So look, 
seven is the number of completion. We're going to talk about that more next week. And we're going to talk about that a lot. But for there to be seven churches meant that this isn't just seven churches. It's meant to be symbolic of the universal church of Christ as a whole. So every church everywhere, always, the universal body of Christ is represented in these seven churches. And it's why he wrote to the seven churches. It's also important because if you follow the path of these seven churches, this kind of follows this natural progression of what, of what if you sent a messenger out to these churches, that's the normal path that they would follow, the way that they're listed in here, the way that they're listed here, first in, chapter, in verse four, but then also in chapters two and three. It follows the normal path to these churches, which means that not only were these churches, you know, meant to represent the universal church, but they were also just distribution centers back then for other churches in the area. Like this was, this is Jesus making sure that all of his people got to read this letter. We also need to understand that Revelation is an epistle. Just like Ephesians, just like Galatians, just like James, it is a letter written to churches and therefore should be read just like any of those other epistles. Just like how we understand the cultural context of those books to understand how they apply to us today, we understand the cultural context of Revelation. We must understand who Paul was writing to and why that mattered to apply this book for us today. So I know this is a lot of information, but I just want to kind of finish up here by going through these verses and kind of talking about how we're going to break up Revelation. So first of all, we're going to break up Revelation into several sections. Okay, not every chapter is going to fall into one of these sections, but the check the sections will help us stay focused on what the book is trying to tell us. For example, this the first two weeks here, we're going to be just doing kind of this intro to the book. We're going to be spending all of our time in chapter one and just kind of giving this this intro of like, hey, this is, you know, this is this is what we can expect to see the rest of this book. You know, here's a little bit of the symbolism. Here's a little bit of the deeper meaning so that we can understand the rest of the book of Revelation. And then next, we're going to go into the seven churches, and we'll spend a few weeks talking about the seven churches and what they represent and what they mean and how we can apply that to ourselves today. And so what I want to do is I want to go through just the, the first, first eight verses here with you guys today just so we can spend a little bit of time in this book. We can just talk a little bit about the context of this book. We can talk about the themes and the ideas that we're going to explore throughout this book. And I'm not going to spend a long time on this. But I think that this is important because the first eight verses here really serve as a sort of summary for the entire book of Revelations. Like if we can understand the first eight verses here, we can understand the rest of the book. So if you guys are ready, we're going to go ahead and dive in. I know it's been a lot of information already, but we're just going to go ahead and dive in and um, get right into the first eight verses here. So specifically verses one through three, I already read this, and we talked a little bit about these verses and who John is and why he wrote this. But I do want to point out that verse two makes it clear that this testimony was given by Jesus Christ to us. So this is a testimony of Jesus that we are given. This is just like reading the words that he said in the Gospels. Like this is a testimony of Christ directly to us. And verse 3 shows us that this book is for all Christians. It said, blessed are those who hear. That means everyone who hears this book, all of the Christians. He's writing to everyone, not just the churches back then, not just the people back then, but to all who hear this book, to all who understand this book, to all who take the time to believe the things that are written in this book. Okay, so this book was written to all Christians. 
Now, let's look at the the next eight verses, verses four through eight. Starting in verse four, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. First of all, guys, this letter starts off just like any other epistle would. We have the typical greeting here that we're used to seeing. It's a little bit different, but it's your typical greeting. But this is also, however, where the symbolism starts. Okay, so John is establishing two really important things here. The first is that the foundation of this book is the Trinity. Okay, the foundation of this book is the Trinity. It was given by the Father to the Son and can only be understood through the Holy Spirit. So already we see the Trinity at play, but he also mentions the Trinity here. Though that can be difficult to see if you don't understand the symbolism. He's talking about here the one who was and who is to come. And that's referring to God the Father as we've seen in other places in Scripture. It's like when he refers to himself as the great I am. He's saying, hey, I am and I always have been. I am. Then he talks about the seven spirits in front of the throne of heaven. That's referring to the Holy Spirit, which seems weird because there's not seven different Holy Spirits. We know that there's one Holy Spirit. But this, again, is symbolism. Okay, This number seven is the number of completion, and it shows us the Holy Spirit is representing and is living in the seven churches before God. But it's also referencing the perfection and completeness of the Spirit. So essentially, this is like him saying, hey, Hey, it's not just the Holy Spirit before God. It is these churches who are before God and the Holy Spirit is in them. God is dwelling in his people. And then finally, he talks about Christ, who is explicitly mentioned here. This shows us that though the foundation of this book is the Trinity, the focus of this book is Christ. The focus of this book is Christ. There's a reason that Jesus is the only member of the Trinity mentioned by name. There's also a reason that he spends so much time on Christ as opposed to the others. Revelation may be rooted in the Trinity, but it is primarily about Christ and his victory over all things. And the next few verses show us this. Because verses 5 through 8 specifically outline the entire message of this book. And there's so much comfort and hope to be found here. As he talks about what Christ has done for us, this is to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. It's already showing us the gospel in depth. Verses 5 and 6 lay out the gospel for us. He's already won the victory against sin and death. He's already saved us from hell. He has already won this. And that's already good news, but it doesn't end there. See, verse 7 shows us that not only did he win that victory for us, but he's coming back to claim this world as his own. This is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7, okay? So already we're getting into the Old Testament symbolism here. And this isn't just a a loose reference to Daniel chapter 7. This is almost word for word taken from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, 
where he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. The ancient of days there is, rep is referring to God. Okay. So it's God, the father. So it's saying one, like a son of man came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Guys, this has been God's plan from the very beginning. There's so much I wish I could unpack in just this reference alone, but we don't have time to get into all of that. So just what I want you guys to see is that this has always been God's plan. He has always known that he would send Christ, and Christ has always been coming back to claim this world as his own. He is coming, and nobody will be able to deny him anymore. This will be a great day of terror and torment for those who denied him, and yet John ends this by saying amen, because despite the bad in this world, God is good, and he will claim this world for good. Again, there's so much more I could say here, but we're, we're going to wrap this up with verse 8. Okay, so Alpha and Omega, some of you may already know this, but these are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. This is essentially God saying that he is the first and the last of everything that we know. He is our beginning and our ending. He's the beginning of all language, of everything that we know, of every single word. This would be like him saying that he is A to Z because every single thing that we know, every word, every letter, every number, all of it is contained in him. He was there at our creation and he will be there at our end. He is the first and last of everything that we know. This should lead us both into, into humble awe and into great security. Into knowing that God is above all things, that he created all things, that he is all powerful, but also into knowing that he loves us and we are secure in his arms. This is also a line that is repeated at the very end of, of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 13. So in other words, he's also the beginning and the end of this book. He is the word of God. Just like how Jesus is described in Hebrews as the word of God, and just like how he's described in John chapter 1 as the word of God, over and over again we see this in Scripture. Here he's showing us that he is the word of God. This revelation given to us by Jesus Christ is the word of God, and he is both the beginning of it and the end of it. He is at the beginning of this book and the end of this book. He is at the beginning of all things and the end of all things. The whole purpose of this book, just like any other book of the Bible, is to point us back to Jesus. We're meant to see here over and over again that Christ is victorious and that he is triumphant. There is so much more that I could say, that I could unpack, that I could get into with this book, but I won't because this is where we're going to end tonight. I hope this wasn't too much. Like I said, next week will be so much lighter because we're not going to be getting into all the technical stuff. We're not going to be getting into all the deep details. Most of that was happening tonight so that we can just focus on the text from here on out. Next week, we're going to pick up with the rest of chapter one, and we're going to walk through kind of the rest of what makes this book so important, so meaningful. And we're going to kind of continue with this intro of the book. Next week, we're going to really get into some of the symbolism as we see the first appearance of Jesus and his first image that John sees in his vision. So let's pray.
God, I thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done. God, for your goodness, for your word. God, for sending your son Christ, not only to save us from our sins, not only to be triumphant and victorious over sin and death, but also, God, to conquer all things, to take dominion over all things, to come back to this world, to give us the hope and security that all things are held in your hands. God, as we continue to walk through this book, help us to see your goodness in it. Help us to see the the eternal security that we can get from it. Help us to learn what it means to apply this book to our lives and what it means to live out the truth that you are good and that you are coming back in to claim this world as your own. I love you and I pray all of this In Christ's holy and precious name, amen.